Maybe you got asked this question first time you told your homies at high school that you have a serious girlfriend. First thing they said, so what's she like? Remember that question? What's she like? The reason they're asking is because they're nervous that she's going to steal you from them. So they're looking for chinks in her armor right off the top so they can work against her. So what's she like? It's one of those uh, inevitable sadnesses of growing up that uh, as your friends begin to partner off, sometimes that changes the dynamics of your relationship. That's why the marriage ceremony has in it, for better, for worse. What's she like? And so you'll describe what she's like. You'll say, well, she kind of looks like, and you'll describe what she looks like. They'll ask for more. What's she like, though? You'll say, well, she kind of is like this, and you'll describe how she acts. You'll talk about her personality, the things she likes and doesn't like, the things she does and doesn't do. What's she like, though? You'll say where she's from. Well, she grew up here, and that'll kind of give them a picture of maybe what kind of girl she is. Is she a country girl? Is she a city girl? In my case, is she a suburban girl? Nikki was raised in Mississauga, and that's a part of who she is and some of the things that she values. Not the sum total, but it paints a picture. So what's she like? These are snapshots that help to describe a person. So what's a Christian like? Well, we'll turn to Mark 10 for that. And he left there, speaking of Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, uh, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. <laughs> and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happened to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. These fools. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. (laughs) Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, no kidding, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. My favorite. And they came to Jericho, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David! Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, "Uh, What do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Man, these chapters just don't stop. I mean, they are so iconic. You could preach seven weeks on this one chapter. Um, If you're having a bit of a hard time uh, with the lack of brevity in my sermons of late, I just commend to you that this passage should be preached in seven parts. Uh, And so I am trying to preach what should be preached in seven parts in 28 minutes. So give me a little grace. This chapter is epic. It's so epic it almost scares the living daylights out of me. This is what Christians look like. We see it right here in Mark 10. This is what Christians look like. They're soft-hearted, childish do-gooders who share and serve persistently. That's what Christians look like. First thing they look like, soft-hearted. This is the point of verses 1 through 12. Soft-hearted. The darn Pharisees come to Jesus, bugging him as usual. Verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What they're doing here is they're testing him, testing him for doctrinal purity. I want to point out to you that this is often the activity of the Pharisees, testing for doctrinal purity. And they're bothersome and annoying, and most of the time they miss the point. That's what they're doing here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're also trying to get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. Herod Antipas, the Herod who ruled in Galilee, was a bit of a womanizer, 
bit of an idiot. He had divorced his wife. They're trying to trap him. Jesus comes out hard against divorce. Herod's going to be upset. He comes out soft against divorce. The Jewish religious elite are going to be upset. It's a zero-sum game here. They're trying to trap him. And so what Jesus does is he takes their legalistic gamesmanship and seriously one-ups them. He does this in verses 5 through 9. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. In the words of the King James, let no man put asunder. Let no one separate. The key here is verse 5, because of the hardness of your heart. Divorce and remarriage was one of the key controversies in Jesus' day. Okay, so if you think about some of the key controversies in our day, this controversy was kind of the central controversy in Jesus' day. So when they're asking him about this, this is a really loaded question. And when he answers this, his response carries huge weight and is guaranteed to cause a ruckus. In Judaism at the time, the reference to support divorce came out of Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'll read to you here the verses that apply to it. They include verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, surprise, surprise, when it came to Jewish law, much as it is today with Christian legalism, there were various interpreters of the law. The two most popular, and they are popular to this day, were Hillel and Shammai. And you had the schools of Hillel and the schools of Shammai. The school of Shammai was the conservative school. So the school of Shammai, when they taught on divorce, said, absolutely forbidden, except in the case of adultery. This was the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel was the liberal school, or progressive if you prefer that term, or moderate if you're me and prefer that term. And the school of Hillel, in this case, I think were way too far left of center. What they said is, for any reason, if she displeases you for any reason, you may put her away. Now, keeping in mind that this law was set down in Deuteronomy 24, and we are now, as these events unfold, somewhere in the early 30s A.D., it has been thousands of years since this law was enshrined in Judaism. Take a wild guess which school was the more popular, Hillel or Shammai? Somebody shout it out. Hillel. The school of Hillel was the popular school. Why? Because it enabled men to cast women off. Why is this a problem? Well, even in our modern age, we would say, well, that's cruel. Nobody should be allowed to do that. Imagine how it would have worked in a culture where women were of no status, had no rights, and absolutely no protection under the law outside of the protection of their husband. Imagine the cataclysmic consequences of a culture that permitted its men to set their women aside for any reason. 
This is what Jesus is speaking to. Because of the hardness of your heart. So against the cultural backdrop where women were things with no status or rights, when Jesus says in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, what is he emphasizing? The way I read it, and the way the commentators that I studied read it, he is here emphasizing the rights of women. He is here emphasizing the value of women. All the women ought to say amen. This is what your Jesus is doing here. He is championing the cause of his daughters. It's very important to say, and I know this may be uncomfortable summer for some of you, if not for most of you, but it is the truth. If you'd like a discourse from me on it, we can do so over email or in person sometime. I will not get into the details today. But from the biblical perspective, sex is marriage. Sexual intercourse is marriage. So the moment you enact that act, from the Bible's perspective, the two have become one flesh, you are married. This is incredibly sobering in a culture like ours that is so rampantly promiscuous that in any audience where this doctrine is preached, you'll have people who are immediately counting it up. Going, wow, I've been married six times. I've been married 17 times. I've been married eight times. I've been married three times. It's, it's quite awful. If you need a theology to teach your teenagers about abstinence, this is it. Sexual intercourse is marriage from the biblical worldview. Therefore, until you're married, we ought to abstain from it. Why? Again, from Jesus' perspective, in this context, because a woman is not just a thing, and a marriage is not just a contract. (laughs) How hard is this? A woman is not just a thing to be used for pleasure, and a marriage is not just a contract to be entered into for convenience. The law of self-giving love, taken out of Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus' great summation of all the law and the prophets. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. This great summation, this law of self-giving love, it's agape love there, the kind of love that gives itself away and does no harm. This great summative law underlies Jesus' teaching here on divorce. And I want to point out to you this morning that the kind of heart that gives itself away selflessly in love is a soft heart. Christians look soft-hearted. And, point number two, they look childish. This is the point of verses 13 through 16. This is where they're bringing the children to him for him to bless them. (laughs) And the disciples don't like it. They're running crowd control. They rebuke the children, rebuke the parents. Stop bothering the teacher. Jesus is indignant when he finds out. And he corrects them, I believe, harshly. When he says in verse 15, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Why do I use childish rather than childlike? Because childish is more vulnerable and silly, and that's exactly what children are. So like if I say you should be childish and it offends you, I've made my point. I prefer childlike. It's much more dignified. Exactly! 
Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Christians are childish. Jesus takes no prisoners. What were children considered in Jesus' time? Like women, statusless, weak, and vulnerable. Don't forget this sub-theme. It comes up in the first instance, here in the second instance. You'll see it again with the rich young ruler in just a moment. Children of the New Testament are statusless and powerless. He's just been rebuking Jewish and Roman men for callously taking advantage of the cultural weakness of their women. And because he's Jesus and likes to go for the jugular, he in effect says here when it comes to children and applying childishness to us, unless you all become weak and of no status, you cannot enter God's kingdom. This should make you sick to your stomach. Why? Because we hate weakness and we love status. Somebody say touche. But I want you to notice this: the children that Jesus takes in his arm and it's the children that he blesses. If you want to be God's friend, if you want to experience his blessing, get weak because Christians look childish. And, point number three, they look like do-gooders. This is the point of verses 17 through 27. Rich young ruler shows up, verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I always found him pompous, or at least a brown noser. He's bringing the apple to the teacher. I was that guy in school, so touche. Try hard. What must I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? Jesus, snarky Jesus here. Uh, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Are you saying I'm God? Then Jesus cuts to the chase, and this is beautiful. You might miss it with a casual reading. He gives them a list of don'ts drawn from the Ten Commandments. Not all the Ten Commandments, kind of like a crib sheet. Whole list of don'ts with one do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And you can bet the legalists in his day, and perhaps if you're a legalist, whenever you come to a don't list in the Bible, you're like, check, check, check. Check. And I know you won't say it out loud, but if you're saying touche in your heart right now, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to repent of that kind of checklist type attitude when it comes to following Jesus. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Why? Because Jesus, because he loves the rich young ruler, drops the hammer on him in verse 21. I love whenever Jesus drops the hammer. I'm thinking, drop the needle. Right? A little Maestro Fresh West. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Oh, mind you, this is after the rich young ruler says, all these I have kept since my youth. (laughs) Anytime you meet anybody who says anything like that, you should slap them in Jesus' name. (laughs) I'm perfect, why aren't you? (laughs) I don't want to say too much. Anyway, I'll just keep moving here. I'll just keep moving here. I've kept all these since my youth. He loved him, okay, which means this guy's not a total jerk. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing. Here's the hammer. Go. Now listen now. It was don'ts. Now it's do's. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great 
possessions. So I can say this radical thing today. The way to eternal life does not consist of the bad things you do not do, but it consists in the good things you do do. You're like, say what? That, whoa! Okay. First John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son keeps on cleansing us from all our sin. The keeps on cleansing us there is taken from the Greek root. Keeps on cleansing us from all our sin. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Do good. That's what Christianity looks like. And, point number four, share. This is the point of verses 28 through 31. Okay, in contrast to the rich who trust their money, and that may be you, by the way, Jesus' people share. This is outlined clearly in verses 29 through 31. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, even though Jesus is the same rabbi who a couple chapters back taught us the parable of the sower, and so we do have some hope that we will see a 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold increase in the work of our hands, but we're like stretching it there because that parable is really about the gospel. Here Jesus makes it very clear that um, <clears throat> this does not mean, sadly, that your salary is going to go up a hundred times because you're following Jesus. And everybody said, dang it. I mean, how could it mean that, having just come out of the teaching to the rich young ruler? Okay, don't lose the context here. So what is Jesus saying? This, receive it. I can get excited here, but I'm trying to stay calm. I'm trying to smile, stay calm, be non-controversial. Basically, don't be me. It's awesome being me. <laughs> this means you will probably meet at least 100 people in your life who, because they are following Jesus, will share their life with you. See, I couldn't do it. I lack self-control. Your friends take you out for Italian and they foot the bill. That's the 100-fold promise. Your friends invite you to their cottage for the week. That's the 100-fold promise. They share their tools with you. She shares her dress with you. They mow your lawn. They watch your kids. They bake your bread or sous vide salmon tacos. That's the 100-fold promise. This is an invitation for you, church, to share more. In the Christian worldview, prosperity comes through community. This is also the Jewish worldview. This is decidedly not the Western Caucasian worldview. Prosperity comes through community. Back to smiling. <gasps> Because Jesus' people share, and they, point five, serve. This is the point of verses 34 and 35. 
these idiot disciples are just like me. Um, Lord, we were wondering, could we be the greatest? <laughs> no, nah, no, nah, could we be the greatest? No, nah, no, nah, don't listen to him. Could we be the greatest? Stupid fools. I, I want to be the greatest. I love that Jesus says, look, it's not for me to decide. Plus, verse 42b, um, you know how those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave. Why? Because we're learning to let Jesus' life transform ours. And even the Son of Man himself, God the Son made flesh, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a powerful word here. It's loosener. And to give his life as a loosener for many. Jesus gave his life to loosen you from the bonds of sin. This is why God the Son became a man. This is why God the Son went to a cross. This is why he suffered and died in your place for your sins. So that the wrath of God, his Father, at sin might be laid on him, not on you. This is why he did not stay dead, but rose the third day, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell in his body. This is why he ascended to his Father's right hand, sat down in victory where he is even now interceding for you. This is why he will come again someday. To judge the living and the dead. And to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end. A kingdom in which if you belong to him, there is a place for you. Because he has loosed you from the bonds of death. And look, I'm angry about this, but I'm trying not to be angry about it. I'm like Calvin and Hobbes. You know Calvin and Hobbes? Whenever somebody starts talking about something that he thinks is foolish, his eyes kind of glaze over. He's kind of like, he's checked out. This will happen with me and you if you ever come to me and start waxing rhapsodic about the narrow gate and the difficult way that Jesus describes in Matthew 7, 14. Before you come to me and wax rhapsodic about your perspective on the limits on God's grace, may I remind you that the same dude said he came to loose the bonds of many And so you tell me, in light of God's summative command in Matthew 22, when it comes to the law of self-giving love in Christ, whether it is more loving to fixate on the narrowness of that gate and the difficulty of that road, or to fixate on the fact that Jesus Christ himself says, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. I much prefer a Christianity that fixates on the wideness in God's mercy than one that fixates upon its narrowness. And I believe that that kind of Christianity, the kind that fixates on the wideness in God's mercy, is exactly the kind of Christianity that our lost and dying world needs. They do not need to hear, you don't belong. They do need to hear, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hallelujah! Where am I in my sermon? I'm almost done. (laughs) And look, friends, it's because we love the loosener so much 
that we pour out our lives for him, for his gospel, for his people, on his mission to seek and save the lost and to accomplish the renewal of all things. Don't get it twisted. Not because we're trying to be good, but because we so love the loosener. Because we love him who first loved us, Christians look like servants, and we do it six, and finally, persistently. Let me just make sure I didn't miss point five. I didn't miss it. Good. We do all this persistently. Like my favorite, blind Bartimaeus from Jericho. I love blind Bartimaeus. I love him. I love him. I love him. First time I ever preached good in my life, I preached this passage. I love him. Why? Because he's blind. Which means like the women, like the children, he's marginalized and he's an outcast and he has no hope and he hears that the Savior of the world is nearby and so he starts shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! You're like, Todd, you're too loud. No, I'm not! Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! And many rebuked him, saying, you're bothering us with your loudness. You're bothering us with your desperation. You're bothering us with your need. A little decorum, please. A little crowd control, please. What does he do? He cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! It's a hard word. I say it only because I love you. Do you look like the people who are trying to keep order around Jesus? Or do you look like someone in desperate need of his touch? Best day ever. Jesus stops in his tracks and says, bring Bartimaeus to me. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. So they come to him and they say, the best words you'll ever hear, take heart, get up. He is calling you. Take heart, get up. He is calling you. He's calling. He's calling. These are words to live by. If you remember one thing about Jesus, this would be enough. Take heart. There is hope because of Jesus. Get up. Take action because of Jesus. He is calling. None but the voice of the master matters. Worship team, come join me on this stage and get ready to tear the roof off this joint. Because what does Bartimaeus do in verse 50? He throws off his cloak and he springs up and he comes to Jesus. What is his cloak? It is the symbol of his poverty. And he throws it off. And that is your destiny. For you've been promised the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And like Joshua the high priest in Zechariah's vision, in Zechariah 3.4, God himself will give you fresh garments to replace the excrement-stained ones you've been living in. Just like he will give his martyrs white robes someday if the vision in Revelation 6.11 is true. He will give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Be 
a Christian like Bartimaeus. Know what you need and keep asking for it until you get it. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You know what it says in the Greek? And immediately he uplooks and followed Jesus. Soft-hearted, childish, do-gooders who share and serve persistently with their eyes up following Jesus. That's what Christians look like. And yes, I just broke the pulpit. I mean, that one's going to live in infamy. You're going to literally say to your friends, my pastor karate chopped the pulpit this Sunday. And you know what that's going to do? People are either going to run from this church and never come back, or they're going to run to this church and never leave.